You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. As always, want to remind our listeners that are checking us out for the first time, please go to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. It doesn't have to be a long rating, but any kind words about the podcast that you like would be greatly appreciated. Also, want to let you guys know, make sure you're following us on all the social media sites. We are on Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast. Same for Instagram. Also on Twitter at Hazard Ground. You can stay locked into everything that we're doing each week, the guests that we have coming out and future guests, and also contact us about anybody that you'd like to have or like to see coming up on the Hazard Ground podcast. Make sure you guys reach out via social media. This week's guest on the Hazard Ground is one of our more special guests, and it's a story we've told a couple of times over, but his point of view is one in particular that we have not touched on. He is Mike Durant, former chief warrant officer. He's also a New York Times bestseller, and now he owns a company called Pinnacle Solutions. But his story of being in captivity in Somalia for 11 days is what we are here to talk about, and he joins us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Mike, welcome. Thank you for being here. No, it's my pleasure. All right. Well, Mike, obviously, you know, your story is one that has been chronicled several times over. uh, So it's a pleasure to speak with you about it. But, you know, we always ask people at the beginning of the podcast, how would you end up in the military? How did you get your start? Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, from northern New Hampshire, you know, rural town, pretty small town, and my father's in the National Guard, but I, I didn't really think too much about the military. It, it was, uh, you know, not something really that was part of my everyday life. I don't really have, uh, you know, my family's not necessarily a military family, but I went flying in a helicopter with a, a friend of the family. He uh, he had that in his own business, and he offered me a ride one summer i think i was probably 14 years old and uh, it was just amazing i thought this is just a fantastic uh, experience and you know thinking the fact that that's a job and you know i talked to him a little bit he was actually uh, a military pilot he was still in the national guard and uh, you know he talked about flight school and from that moment forward i really thought about you know this is something i really want to do and sort of made that my uh, I guess high, you know, my high watermark, my, you know, the bar that I would like to, uh, to, to achieve. And I was fortunate enough to do so. So when you enlisted, you knew from the beginning, that's what you want to do. Did you run into any challenges doing it? Or you got to go right from your enlistment, you know, into, uh, becoming a warrant officer and flying and all those things kind of how that had that path go. Yeah. You know, with anything in the military, there's always challenges. I, uh, I was told I couldn't go right away, which in fact was not true, but that's the information that was given to me. So I, I thought it was important enough where I was willing to go ahead and join the military anyway, and then uh, try to get uh, accepted f- uh, from active duty. And uh, I did. I, I went to a Spanish school. I went to the Defense Language Institute for almost a year and learned how to speak Spanish. And I went to Panama for my assignment and was down there for uh, I don't know, almost two years and applied for flight school from there. Now, back then, you know, if you're not going online and entering uh, your information in the database. You're, you're filling out forms and sticking them in an envelope and mailing it and, and waiting for an answer to come back. And uh, as is uh, the case normally with these sort of things, the paperwork got lost. Fortunately, I, you know, I made a copy of everything. I submitted it again. And then Right about the time I'm supposed to be separating from service, I get a packet back that said I'd been accepted, and I uh, I extended my enlistment and 
uh, jumped on a plane and flew back to the states and went to flight school. Yeah, little did you know that that would change the course of your life forever. Because it's a, it's always weird. Everybody has a story like that in the military, where a a minor decision or a minor happenstance event sends you throughout a whole different course of events throughout your career. So, what was it like when you finally got to sit in a helicopter and and reach the goal that you ultimately wanted so badly? Yeah, I, I would say it did not disappoint. It was, uh, I mean, this is fun, you know, to have a job where you can. Uh, look forward to going and doing it every day. I, I, my timing was good. You know, you mentioned, you know, luck and timing. My timing was good in that after I got out of flight school, the units that I went to uh, had good flying hour programs, which means you've got a chance to fly a lot. You know, a lot of times you'll come out being qualified, but there's, you know, budget constraints or whatever. You don't get to do what you were trained to do, but I, that did not happen to me. I, I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, just had a fantastic experience. Went to Korea right away from flight school. Had a great mission there. And then uh, that's when I found out about this special operations thing. What year is this when this all happened, when you finally got, you know, behind the, the uh, or got in the pilot's chair, I should say? Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty young, actually, when I think about it now. I was only 22. And uh, wow. I, uh, so this would be 1983 when, uh, 82, 83 when I went to flight school. Now, you mentioned Korea and you mentioned special operations. You ended up becoming part of the 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And for those listening who aren't familiar with the military, I mean, these are the hottest pilots in the world. There's nobody better at what they do than these guys getting in and getting out of, of you know, high combat, uh, you know, tough places and small landing zones and things of that nature. And uh, these are just the best pilots that the military has to offer. How did you find out about those guys, and how much did that intrigue you, the opportunity to go do that? Yeah, in the early days when the unit had just been formed, there really was not much information out there in the public domain. Nobody knew right. about it. It was, And that was by design. It was supposed to be, you know, a counterterrorist force, and it was— you know, counterterrorism was being developed. Uh, our tactics were being developed before that. You know, most Americans even were familiar with the term. And uh, someone, you know, in a bar was just talking about this unit that existed at Port Campbell that only flew at night and flew these specialized, mod- specially modified aircraft. And you know, for me, that's that's taken it to the next level, and uh, it really, really piqued my interest. So. I just happened to be uh, going to Fort Campbell from Korea. That's where my assignment was taking me. So I decided I would go uh, inquire and uh, went, you know, eventually went through the assessment process and got accepted into the unit. What was that like? What was the assessment process? I mean, did they actually put you in the cockpit and make you fly, or did they just kind of look at your records and flight hours and things of that nature? It's all the above. You know, as you said, um, th- this, is, this is an elite organization, not that – you know, military aviation in general is not uh, full of great people, but they're very selective. Um, you have to submit a packet and they'll, they'll review you and make sure you got enough qualifications on paper. And then you actually go to an evaluation that I think lasted about a week and it involved uh, everything from a psychological eval to swim test to land navigation, a check ride in an, in an aircraft. And then the culminating point was going into a room in your dress uniform and being asked questions for which there was no good answer, you know, so they're basically just trying to put you in a, in a tough position and see how you react, you know, even in a a board setting, just to get some feel for, you know, what makes you tick. Do you remember what one of those questions was? Just as an example, I'm curious, I don't know if you can share it or not due to classification reasons, but um, do you remember what one of those questions would be like? Well, I'll give an example in, in the, 
and it's interesting that it actually happened uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the scenario is you're in a, you know, on a classified mission and your, your location is compromised by you know, fill in the blank, young children, uh, a bus full of nuns, uh, you know, innocent people, <laughs> you know, innocent people, either, either scenario. And, right. and you're asked, so what do you do? Because no one can know you're there. Do you, you know, what is your next move? And, you know, some people will say, well, uh, I'm going to kill them because I can't, you know, let the mission fail. Well, that, that's not really what they're looking for, for an answer. They're just looking for something creative. You know, some people say, I'm, I'll bag them up, throw them on the aircraft, take them with me. Other people say, you know, I'll tie them up and just give us enough time to get out of country. You know, it just, it just again, just trying to gain some insight into how you think. And, you know, we don't want totally radical people, but we want people that, or understand the importance of the mission and, and how to get it done despite the you know very technical challenge like that. So you get accepted to the 160th SOAR. What year is this? So that is 1988. Okay. So you are now part of this organization. It's five years until Somalia happens. What's going on in your career at those five years? I mean, are you doing high-profile missions that no one's talking about that we didn't, you know, back then we didn't have the media coverage of, things of that nature? Some, but most of them were big enough scale-wise that, uh, you know, there were conventional assets involved and everybody knew what was going on. We, you know, we went to Panama for just cause. Right. And, you know, our mission was just unique in that we, we were actually the force that was chasing Manuel Noriega. Everybody else was, you know, taking, you know, setting up security positions or, or you know, taking terrain where our mission is always just highly specialized like that. So, we we called them Elvis. We were we had Elvis sightings all over the country, and we were always, you know, launching and, and trying to track him down. And finally, you know, did trap him in uh, in a location, and eventually he gave himself up. And and Cliff Walcott, who ends up flying with me in uh, Somalia, is actually the guy that flew him out of that compound. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, that's crazy. So but, so that was one. And then Desert Storm was another. Sure. Was a, yeah. Obviously, a big one. And there was a couple others that are not quite as high profile. Let me ask you, Mike, you know, in everything that went down in Somalia, obviously we'll get to in a minute, but how much in the time leading up to that had you had these oblique kind of moments that prepared you for anything like that? Or did that not happen to you, fortunately? Well, we, you know, we took losses. We, we lost a crew in Panama. We lost a, we lost a crew in Desert Storm. So we definitely knew what it felt like to lose people. And, uh, you know, th- those are the sobering moments. It's, it, it, it's, we all feel like we're bulletproof. We all feel like we're, uh, we have no vulnerabilities and we're just going to go out, we're going to do this thing and nobody can touch us. And then you sort of get slapped in the face with reality when guys who, you know, either are your friends or coworkers or, you know, fellow professionals uh, aren't there anymore. And you realize this is not, this is not a game. This is dangerous. And, and that's as close as I ever got. Now, is that the same as it actually happening to you? Not, not exactly, but it, it gives you some, uh, it's a sanity check or sort of resets the, the perspective that, Hey, this is real. You know, there's a, there's a high price to pay when things go wrong and uh, you know, it could be you next. You know, pilots always kind of, uh, the mentality of them amazes me. Like, to me, it seems like perspective is always so important when it comes to pilots because there are so many things that can go wrong or so many things that happen 
in a given flight, and I don't want to alarm the civilians as far as a civilian aircraft, but I assume that there are routine things that go on or they seem routine to the pilots that the average person, if they heard about it, would be like, oh, my God, we're going to crash. So I feel like for you guys, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, is you know I'm a ground guy, so I, I like my feet planted firmly where they are. But we don't run into that as much. You know, we only run into that when bullets start flying, which is the wake-up call for everybody. But for you guys, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that happen in the air where, it, you know, you realize that things are very dangerous. That's absolutely true, especially military aviation, because, it, I mean, the reality is commercial aviation is pretty straightforward. I mean, you, you know, it's a runway, prepared surface, you take off, you fly up in the air, you've got air traffic control. There's, you know, and the safety record of commercial aviation sort of, uh, you know, points to, to how safe it really right, is. It's yeah. incredibly safe. It's far safer than driving down the highway. So military aviation, though, is a different story. I mean, we are on the edge all the time. We're flying, you know, low-level, bad weather, you know, tactical insertions to unprepared locations. There's wires. There's dust. There's So there's no question about it. It is it, it, There's risk in most tactical training operations. And, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, the accident rates... Uh, indicate that you know we just lost a uh, mv-22 in australia and you know i don't know what the cause was but it's just an, another example of it's dangerous if somebody makes a mistake there's no margin for error and, and in some cases people lose their lives and let's not forget everything you're flying was made by the lowest bidder that's not the case in the uh, in the commercial world so uh, just a little pun uh, right there to little take poke a little fun at the uh, u.s <laughs> well, government well, I, I hope not <laughs> <laughs> all right so, uh, so operation just cause comes about and that was the name of the operation that went on in somalia uh, you guys started preparing months in advance before any of this ever got on tv about october 1st and october 2nd uh, all that stuff but you know, as you're going through the preparation cycle, what were you guys told and what were the expectations? We thought it was going to be pretty straightforward. I mean, it, this was uh, really a relief operation that had gone bad. There was, uh, you know, a warlord that was acting up, but sort of a ragtag bunch of, uh, you know, and at the time we didn't know there was any association with any terrorist organization, but in fact there was. But still, not a high threat scenario, fairly straightforward, you know. Not easy, but certainly something well within our capabilities. Um, and the intel turned out to be pretty far from the truth. They were much better equipped, much more uh, resilient, much much more committed to their cause than uh, anybody thought they would be. Well, when you say straightforward, do you mean just as far as, hey, we're going there for humanitarian aid, we're not going to be involved in a lot of combat? Or when you say straightforward, do you mean for you guys, you're going to be doing runs back and forth from point A to point B, you know, flying supplies in, flying them out, so on and so forth? Just kind of elaborate a little bit. Well, no, there, for us, again, again, with the special operations force, it's a specialized right. mission. So our, our mission is to capture Adid and, and all his leadership. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I, I, I go to offhand, make the comment that it's straightforward. Right. It's I was really just thinking not. the same I thing. Mean, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a highly complex tactical operation with 20 some odd aircraft going into a city block at night in a blacked out environment. That's probably not straightforward. Yeah. But okay. We rehearsed enough where, you know, it, we were all comfortable doing it. I mean, I don't think any of us thought anything about the mission other than, you know, we're just going to go do it. It's going to go well and we'll get this thing done and we'll go home. 
You know, it's funny. Everybody we talk to in the special operations community here on the hazard ground, they all have that same calmness and mentality. You know, that you say straightforward, and I just asked for clarification because I wanted to know if it was special operations straightforward or like normal straightforward because they're, they're different things to, to different people in the military. And obviously, you guys are specialized in what you have trained on and what you've done, but, and that is straightforward for you guys as far as, as, as much as you can get. But yeah, fairly complex to say the least. And you guys had enough train up time where going into this, I'm sure you felt like we're prepared for this mission 100%, correct? Yeah, it's all of the above. You know, it's it's the, the preparation, it's the training, it's the fact that you're surrounded by quality people. You know, a lot of times you've heard it said before, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, I'm not going to say there aren't any weaker links, but there's no weak links. So you know that, you know, everybody's going to do what you're expecting them to do. And, uh, you know, we, we operate well as a team and... Yeah, you go in there with the confidence that, hey, I've done this before because we rehearsed it to the point where, you know, it felt like we had done it before. And, you know, as realistic as possible, I often use the Bin Laden mission as a sort of point of comparison because a lot of people are more familiar with that one. But, you know, with the, you know, building a compound to, to rehearse on and role players and, again, trying to simulate exactly what you're going to face on the real mission. We went through all that and it is effective and it makes you better prepared for when you actually execute. So when do you actually arrive in Somalia? What, what time frame are we talking about? Uh, it was August. Okay. Uh, I don't remember exactly. I think it was the 18th or the 19th. It was late, mid to late August. And, uh, you know, initially uh, our mission is, is focused on the deed alone. We're, we're waiting for intel on his location, and uh, we're not going to launch uh, to capture anyone else, unfortunately information on his whereabouts was hard to come by. He knew he was being chased, and uh, he he only let a couple of people know where he actually was. Now, you guys had done several other missions and several other attempts inside the city uh, of Mogadishu where you were to not only get him, but get other people. Um, and, and how did those go? I mean, did those seem fairly straightforward and they all went the same way? They were. The, the, uh, the October 3rd Black Hawk Down mission is actually... This will be the seventh mission of okay. its kind. So we did six others prior, uh, three day, three night, um, and they all went as planned. I mean, we had a couple small contingencies, but we didn't lose any aircraft. We didn't, nobody got seriously injured. A um, couple places we had uh, what we call dry holes, meaning, you know, what we thought was there wasn't there, but that's not our fault. That's an intelligence uh, short pole. But otherwise, uh, as planned. And the only reason I ask that for those listening who aren't 100% familiar with the story of Black Hawk Down, you know, when you got the mission brief about going into the city on October 2nd, October 3rd, whatever it was, you know, there wasn't really a lot of contention in the reports that I've read from people saying, you know, hey, it was a plan that everyone was comfortable with. It wasn't like people were questioning it. It wasn't like people were nervous. Everything seemed to be standard operating procedure at that point in time just to fly into the city, do a snatch and grab and get out, correct? Yeah, I will um, contradict that slightly, okay. and, and it's just because there were a few things about this one mission that um, raised some concern, not to the point where I think anyone wanted to make the argument that we shouldn't go, but first of all, it was the daytime, and, and you know, we saw on the previous daytime missions that, you know, we can't use our technology. Even then, we had lasers, and we had forward-looking infrared systems and night vision goggles and infrared tracers and all kinds of stuff that makes uh, fighting at night uh, when you have those, that equipment, it gives you a tactical advantage. So 
we that negates all that obviously okay. in the daytime. plus it's make, you know, makes it easier to see easier to, easier to shoot at it was in the worst part of the city and that's probably the biggest one we're going right into the hornet's nest and we you know the other ones were more in the periphery and, and kind of quieter areas but where we were going on that day was we're basically going right in and punching them in the face had and you then, not uh, been in that area before at all not that okay. particular area no and then uh we did it. We've done it six times at this point. So they started to see how we're operating, you know, and then the more you do something, it's like a football game. You run the ball up the middle six times in a row, the seventh time, you're probably not going to get any yardage. So you, you've got to continue to mix it up. And, and, and when it comes to assault operations, you've only got so many options. So we, we, we did mix it up slightly, but still basically they knew we were going to go into a building and try to apprehend people and then bring them out. Um, and then there's no landing zones. That's the, the last big ticket item. We, we couldn't land the aircraft. So we can get people in on ropes, but getting them out is going to be more difficult. So for that reason, the extraction on this mission is going to be using ground vehicles. And that makes sense because, again, uh, a lot of exposure time when you're trying to get people off rooftops with helicopters. But the ground vehicles were... Um, more easily uh, trapped, mm -hmm. uh, barricaded, and diverted, and controlled, and that's really what the Somalis ended up doing. You know, they were setting up burning barricades and setting up basically ambushes, and and that's harder to do with helicopters. So uh, I don't know. It, it was just lucky for them that that's what we decided to do, or or you know, they were just waiting for that opportunity. But that that was the last thing that uh, kind of elevated the risk on this one. And the area that Mike's talking about was called the Bacara Market, uh, for those who are familiar with the story. But it was, as you've dubbed it, kind of the Wild West, and it was a very much a militia stronghold uh, in the city of Mogadishu. And a and, uh, lot of guns, a lot of weapons, a lot of people. And so clearly, obviously, as you've detailed it, it made it a little bit more difficult. Um, walk me through the day for you personally when you get up that morning, what you're told, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Yeah, so it was a Sunday, and, uh, you know, typical Sunday, we, we uh, I don't know if we did PT that day or not, running, uh, maybe we did, um, and then we're, we're actually planning a range the following day. People don't realize, even in combat, you have to train, because they don't, you don't do everything that you're, you're required to be proficient at, even, even in combat, so the next day, we're going to go shoot out in the range with our helicopters. And we're sitting in the ops center, sort of planning the basic details of this range. And uh, we get this uh, intel that there's one of the high-ranking people, his location's been identified in this Picard market area. So I, I was one of the flight leaders, so I, I didn't even take time to run back to my bunk. I went straight inside, and, and that's why my kneeboard, which is something we fly with that has all the mission information on it, I didn't have it on that mission because I didn't have time to run back to my bunk and get it. It, it developed that fast. So we get the brief. Uh, I'm feeling, you know, I've done this thing, I don't know, at this, at this point with rehearsals and everything, probably done it 30 times. So, uh, and my co-pilot, Ray Frank's got his knee board. So I figured I don't need it. We need to get out to the birds. So I ran out there. And, uh, so from the time we first got notice, you know, to, to actually launching was, you know, it was minutes. That quick, really? Yeah. Cause you're after people, you know, you can't, and that's, and that's why we, we pre-plan a lot of things and we've got these missions sort of canned in, in that, 
we're only going to brief or have to get spun up on the, the very unique aspects of each mission. Everything else is already planned and we and we've memorized it. So we can get off the ground in, in minutes. And, and if it's, if you're chasing people, you got to be able to do that. You know, I, I recall several times in my experiences in Iraq, and I've mentioned this several times in the podcast, you know, there are certain times when you were going out on a mission, you had better feelings than others. You know, you mentioned before about feeling invincible. Well, there were some days, I, you know, we'd get ready and start prepping for a convoy through Baghdad, and I would just have a sinking feeling in my stomach like something bad was going to happen. Was it because you had such short prep time? Did none of that was able to creep into your head like it was going to be anything different? Yeah, you know, I think I put in my book, of course, you know, when you write a book, you, you, you try to put a couple things in there that may, I'm not going to, it wasn't outright inaccurate, but, you know, it was maybe dramatized a bit. You know, General <laughs> Garrison, he came out on the ramp that day, and I, I don't, I truly don't remember if he'd ever done that before, but, you know, we wrote in the book that, you know, he, he's he's out there on the ramp, basically seeing everybody off, and, you know, that, that raised a, a flag, there were sharks in the water or something like that. You know what I mean? But the bottom line is overall, no, it, it felt pretty much like all the other missions until we hit the target. Okay. So let's kind of walk through this if we can. And Matt Eversman, who happens to be a friend of mine, was the first ever guest on the Hazard Ground, Hazard Ground podcast. So he was part of this whole thing and he gave us his detail from his point. So I'm so curious to get yours uh, how the whole thing went for you. You're, you you leave your, your guy's base and you fly over to the Bacara market. As you're starting to approach over the area where you're going to land, what are you seeing? What's happening? So RPGs are, are already going off. Really? Uh, yeah. And the thing is, they're a little bit hard to see when you're, when you're in the cockpit because we're looking forward. And a lot of times... They're exploding behind us, and you know I'm a I'm the flight lead, so I'm out in front of my formation. Uh, I don't I don't remember seeing any on the way in on this one. I had on a previous mission, but on this one I don't. But I but I do know that they they were already shooting them because you know we're going into their their stronghold. So uh, that that was uh, a little bit different. It was also very very dusty. This place was horrible, and and helicopters. You know, one of the things that is a limitation for us is we have to be able to see the ground, especially in an urban environment. You can't just plant the aircraft, as we call it, because you're going to hit a building. So it was a pretty tricky maneuver getting in there. And of course, as I said, there's no landing area. So we're, we got to hover in this mess. And um, that created a problem for uh, the last chalk or the last aircraft in my flight. There was a miscommunication. I still don't really know what happened, but the bottom line is uh, Ranger Todd Blackburn uh, goes out the aircraft and uh, he either missed the rope or the rope wasn't long enough and he hits the ground and he's hurt pretty bad. Broke, uh, broken hip, I think, broken leg. So that's the first thing that starts to go wrong. Uh, we, we ended up getting our people in where they needed to go. I think that that aircraft, you know, finally got his people in where they needed to go. And then we went north of the city. So at this point, from my perspective, I, I, I may be done because I put my guys in, they're going to come out on ground vehicles. And at this point, I'm just a contingency asset. Okay. And that obviously changes um, shortly thereafter. Do you see the first Black Hawk get hit? I don't see it. I, I hear it. You hear I the call the, over the radio? I heard him make the call. And, you know, it's good friends, Cliff Walcott and Norman Briley. Uh, you know, not only am I invincible, but they're invincible. And, and I'm just assuming that 
you know, they took fire and they're going to land the aircraft or they're going to get back to the runway. And I actually don't find out about Clifton Donovan until I'm released. I, I, uh, I, I knew they went down, but I, eternal optimist, I'm assuming they're okay. And uh, what I didn't know is that, you know, when their aircraft hit the ground, uh, they were both killed on impact. What is that feeling for you when that call comes over the radio? Not only when it's a friend, but just one of the other pilots up in the air is going down to the ground. What's going through your mind at that point? Yeah, you know, for, I think, and you alluded to it earlier, in aviation, you face so many things just in the normal course of doing business that those kind of events don't have as big an impact on you because you've dealt with an engine failure or you've dealt with a hydraulic problem or you've dealt with a really difficult landing or, you know, running into bad weather. So this is not the first time something really bad happens. And again, being an optimist, I'm, I'm thinking, all right, they got it on the ground. We got to figure out how to get them out of there. Let's get this thing wrapped up and get home so we can get something to eat. You know, I mean, that's just kind of, kind of the way I think. And then at that point is when the colonel uh, called me to replace those guys over the target because they were in tight with a sniper trying to provide some additional fire support for the guys on the ground. And, and so it never occurred to you that the mission itself would be impacted by Cliff Walcott's bird going down. Like that thought never said, oh, my God, all of a sudden this changes everything. Well, it does. I mean, it certainly does. But I, I certainly didn't feel like this is not something we could we would not be able to recover from. I, right. I just felt like it's a contingency. We're going to deal with it. We're going to all do what we always do, adapt, overcome, and finish this thing. All right, so you get called in, because for those listening there, where you guys are flying, there's actually another helicopter way above you guys in the air looking at this whole thing over the ground, kind of like the eye in the sky, correct? And, right, and the command and controller. Right, yeah. and so they they inform you, hey, we need you to take this position where Cliff Walcott's bird was. You get that Correct. call, you move in, what happens next and how quickly does it happen? Well, in the interim, the search and rescue aircraft gets shot down also. And, and I think that's really where it changed for me, you know, because this is my friends also. And now within 30 seconds or a minute, another aircraft's been shot down. This is serious business now. I mean, it, we're, we're this, this fight's not over anytime soon and we've just lost two birds, uh, it's game time basically. So, I mean, I remember telling the crew chiefs, Hey, I'm arming your weapons. You know, here's what's just happened. We need to keep our heads on a swivel. You guys are armed, but you know, there's friendlies all over the ground. So you can't just go in there spraying the countryside. So that that's the other challenges. You know, you, you gotta be as concerned about where your guys are as you are where the enemy is. So we were really, at a disadvantage because we did not know where all the friendlies were on the ground yet we got to get in the middle of it and try to figure out you know where we can position ourselves to provide some fire support could you see what was going on on the ground in general could you see anything i know you said the dust was a problem but what was the visibility like well the visibility had cleared up at this point but the, the problem with urban operations is if you're in a helicopter and you're down low and you're on on the move it's very hard to see what's happening down in these alleyways and streets. And sure. What I tell people is if you want to figure out what it feels like drive in, in any city, you know, pick, pick New York city, drive down one of the boulevards at 50, 60 miles an hour, maybe faster. Cause that's how fast we're going in a helicopter and see if you can figure out what's happening in the cross streets. Right. And you can't because you're, they're going by too fast. So that's essentially 
you know, put that in the third dimension. And that's what it's like from the air in a fast moving helicopter. So we're trying to sort it out, but we're having a real hard time figuring out where everybody is. All right. So you get into position. Two birds are down. Is the eternal optimist in you still thriving? No, <laughs> no, not so much. All right. Not, so, not at this point. I, I mean, you know, obviously your adrenaline's running. What's going on? What's happening next? Well, I'm flying. So I'm trying to keep the aircraft moving, trying to keep, be hard to hit. We're in a left turn because we're, we're in an orbit around the target, trying to, again, get in position where we can shoot. So I'm actually looking through the cockpit out the other door because, you know, when you're in a turn, you're in a bank and just trying to figure out how do we, you know, contribute here uh, and not get ourselves killed. And um, maybe by the third pass around the target, we get hit by by an RPG. Never saw it coming. When it, when it hit your chopper, did you know immediately? Yeah, I mean, I knew we'd get hit by something. I, I didn't know for sure it was an RPG, but it, it was, uh, I described it as going through a parking lot uh, too fast and hitting the speed jump. I mean, that's that's what it felt like a jolt to the whole airframe. And uh, you know, it's a big helicopter. We're, we're you know, probably seventeen thousand pounds of, of aircraft at that point, and to jolt it like that had to be something pretty significant. So I rolled level, took a look at everything. All the instruments looked okay, and made the decision that I was going to fly it back to the airfield because I knew. You know, something bad had happened, and we got to go figure out what this is. And the airfield's right there. I mean, we're, we're probably a minute from the airfield. And that's when the tail rotor leaves the aircraft. It completely disintegrated. Okay. And so, like, instinct kicks in at that point, right? As soon as you get hit, you know that something's wrong. You're checking all your, your instruments and your readings and everything. And this is all, like, second nature to you, right? It doesn't require any thought whatsoever. But the minute that tail rotor blows off, do you know that that's what happened and you guys just go into a spin or what? Well, it was disbelief on my part because that is something you never have experienced before. Okay. In most, in all likelihood, you've never even in a simulator. Simulators are great, and we use them for a lot of things. But when it comes to the dynamics of the airframe itself, and you know, rotating like that, you can't simulate that. So, when 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 the aircraft started to spin, it, I was trying to counter that spin with the right control inputs, but they were not working. So there's a little little bit of confusion. It's as though, let's say you're driving down the interstate, you're going 80 miles an hour, all of a sudden your steering wheel becomes disconnected from the front wheels. You're going to be kind of turning (laughs) it back and forth, trying to figure out why the hell is this not working? Wow. And that's, that's, that's really it. You know, it's, and you're sort of confused as what, what has happened in my vehicle? And then that's when I realized, okay, tail rotor's gone because I'm, I'm, putting full anti-torque in one direction and it's going the other direction. And both Ray and I reached the conclusion at the same time. And the only thing you can do then is at that, in that flight profile, which is horrible. That's the worst place you could be for something like that to happen. You have to shut the engines off because the engines are creating this, the spin and you don't have to be a helicopter pilot to know what happens when you shut the engines off and you fall out of the sky. So we, uh, we came down, spinning super hard uh, and crashed in a little shanty town. Before we get into what happened after the crash, I'm curious, because they always do this. They go back and review the flight and look at what you did right and what you did wrong. Did everybody concur that that was the right assessment? Because I'm just sitting here thinking, again, I've never been a pilot, Mike. I I wouldn't even presume to know what to do. But uh, 
would it have been easier to leave the or slow the engines down to try to slow yourself down to the ground as opposed to cut them off? I mean, I'm just asking. I, obviously, yeah, I don't no, know. No, it's a in 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 reality, they don't do detailed investigations for a situation like this. They, okay. They, they the commander flies to Fort Bragg and signs the property book and says he doesn't own the aircraft anymore. I mean, it's about oh. as simple as that. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But, okay. Um, uh, no, but we did do the right thing. It, it, you you have to shut them all the way off. And, it, and in fact, uh, Ray was not able to get them all the way off because the way a Blackhawk designed, the engine controls are up on the overhead and my hands are on the flight control. So he's doing the shutting off and he can only get them about halfway off before we hit the ground. Like, were you spinning so fast like G-forces were involved or did it feel that way? Like, was it yes. hard to reach controls and things of that nature? Yes, that's exactly what happened. He He... He told me after we hit the ground and woke up that we were spinning so fast he couldn't hold his arms up. Wow. Whew, that's a bad amusement park ride, to say the least. Yeah. Okay, so you you hit the deck. Um, do you lose consciousness? Yeah. I, I don't know how long I was out. I guess somewhere, probably another five minutes. Okay. When you wake up, are, what are you thinking? Are you cognizant of what's happened and everything? Do you remember what's happened? All those things. Yeah, you know, it's it, I, I've been, if not knocked out, real close to being knocked out before. And, you know, you're dazed and, and, and confused, and it's like waking from a deep sleep, trying to figure out where you are. And um, my injuries were bad. My my femur was broken, my right leg, uh, my back was, vertebrae were crushed. And, and uh, that as I become more and more aware the pain starts to register and i look around and realize you know this is just as bad as it gets ray his injuries are actually not quite as bad he, his tibia was fractured but that was his femur and uh, and the crew chiefs i couldn't turn around to see them but I, I knew they were alive but they were they were obviously hurt really bad so my first thought is we're going to have to defend ourselves somehow. And I've got um, a minigun right there. In, uh, not a minigun, but a uh, MP5 right there in the cockpit with me. And uh, I decided that I would just try to fight it out as long as I could from my seat. I knew I, I couldn't get out. There's no way I couldn't do it. And uh, so I, I cleared some debris out of the way, picked up my MP5, and decided to uh, make our last stand. How quickly do Somalis start arriving? So it's it's difficult to actually put together the exact timing, especially now. It's been so long, right? Um, you know, and it's not one of those things that replays in my mind all the time. But I I don't think the Somalis came in before. In fact, I know I didn't shoot from the cockpit. So Randy and Gary, Randy Sugar and Gary Gordon are there in my mind almost immediately of course you know i'm out for maybe five minutes so that's the time in which it took them to get in position and move to the aircraft but it seemed almost as, as though as soon as i regained consciousness and spoke to ray briefly randy and gary are standing next to my my door what was that feeling like well it was a tremendous sense of relief i i knew these guys that part of the Task Force Ranger, Delta Operators. I mean, this is, you know, if you want to get saved, these are the kind of guys you want yeah. saving you. And uh, initially, I'm thinking, done deal. You know, they're going to get us out of here and uh, they'll patch us up and we'll be good to go. But I didn't realize it's just two guys. And, you know, the thing about them, uh, I always 
amazes me is, is they, as you alluded to earlier, there was no sense of fear, no sense of panic. No, it was purely sense of purpose and mission. I mean, they were just, what we got to do, you know, let's get them, we'll get you out of here. And, you know, they didn't even rush to get me out of the aircraft. They knew I was hurt and they took their time and made sure they didn't injure me any worse than I already was. And put me on the ground and gave me my weapon and basically put me in a position where I could provide some covering fire um, while they went about and did whatever they needed to do. But it became obvious in a few minutes that it, there were no others and it, and we were surrounded. And as the gunfire started to uh, increase in intensity, uh, I started to realize that my optimism was probably premature. And, and in fact, it was. And you don't obviously find this out until later. And for those listening who aren't familiar with the story, uh, Gary Gordon, Randy Shugart, the, the Delta snipers that you just mentioned, volunteered to be put on the ground. They didn't have to. And uh, there was a lot of resistance from the command about doing it because they knew basically these guys were asking for a suicide mission. They knew that they the, the, the crash site that you were involved in was going to be overrun by uh, uh, thousands of Somalis who were on the streets. And these two guys volunteered, and both of them have were posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for doing so uh, and, and have saved your life, co- coincidentally. I mean, obviously, you're sitting here talking to me because of these two gentlemen. But for those listening, just some background, they volunteered to be put on the ground and do what they could uh, to save the, the people who were there. And, and Mike, obviously, you're a byproduct of that. You know, just to fast forward, and I, I will go back. When you find that out after the fact, what was your thought? Well, I, I have often wondered if I could have done it myself. You know, we, we all feel committed to our fellow soldiers, friends or not. But to, as I understand the story, to, to have almost insisted that they be allowed in when the leadership didn't want to do it. I mean, they didn't want to do it. They told them no, as I understand the story, they told them no at least twice. And finally, one of them, either Andy or Gary, got on the radio directly back to the jock and said, you know, if you guys don't let us go in there, these guys are dead. And uh, that was what it took. And they were allowed in and it cost them their lives, but it, it saved them. Okay, uh, just uh, incredible heroism. I can't even, you know, begin to process it mentally, but just, you know, un- unreal. So you're you're sitting in your position. Uh, you realize that, you know, after the fighting starts, that it's only Gary and Randy helping you out. Uh, what else is going on around you? Does it just chaos immediately ensue? Well, you know, these guys are good shooters, and they were holding them off pretty effectively. Uh, it really became a war of attrition. They 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 ran out of ammo and. Until they did run out of ammo, uh, I, I, let me, I stand corrected. Gary did go down um, before the ammo runs out, but, but it, it was several minutes after the, 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 the firefighting, uh, the gun battle had begun. Um, but uh, I, I took a few shots here and there. I, I don't know if I hit anybody. I, it had the desired effect. They didn't come back, so... I was doing what I was supposed to be doing on my side. And then, uh, and then Randy came back after Gary went down and asked if there were more weapons in the aircraft. And then again, at that point, my optimism is pretty well gone because now I realize that you know, Gary's down, Randy's out of ammunition and there's no one else around. So he gets the uh, crew chief's M16s out of the back, goes around, makes his last stand. And, and then it's at that point, as I recall, it was like being at the range. I mean, it, it was, gunfire from all directions uh, but i will say that the, the somalis uh, 
have said that there were 27 Somalis killed at our crash site, all in that gun battle. So that's a lot of good shooting by a couple of amazing, uh, courageous warriors that did all they could to uh, to keep it from happening and just didn't have enough time or ammo. All right, so when you realize what happens, how quickly does your actual position become a mob scene? Yeah, so I'm right on the other side of the aircraft uh, from where Randy made his last stand. And I was out of rounds. I shot all the rounds out of my weapon. And then I, I, Randy actually gave me Gary's weapon. I believe it was Gary's anyway. And uh, I fired a few rounds that were left in it. And, and at that point, I, there's nothing I can do. I mean, I can't, I can't hide. They're, they're, they're coming. And uh, they stopped shooting. Uh, be, because I don't think they knew the attack had come from the opposite side of the bird. And I don't think they knew that I was actually there. And then they, when they overran the site, they, uh, they were seemed sort of, sort of startled when they first saw me. And, and fortunately their first reaction wasn't just put a bullet in my head. Their first reaction was sort of split between ripping off all my gear and uh, trying to beat me to death. I, I can't imagine. I mean, when, do you have time to be scared? Do you have time to like have feelings like this might be the end? Yeah, I mean, I, as they were approaching, I still had this image in my in my mind of the clouds that were passing overhead, and I think at that point, I I knew it was out of my hands. I mean, I had no other options left. I, I'm always I'm, I've always been one who's trying to figure out how to solve the problem and how to get around the challenge. And and at that point, I just couldn't come up with anything. It was just nothing that could be done. And and yeah, I mean, I thought it was over. And, you know, I, I, I won't say, uh, I, I distinctly remember the feeling of fear, but, but uh, you know, I'm sure I was uh, overcome by it. So what happens next uh, as far as the fact that you don't get killed? So somehow, and I didn't know this until Mark Bowden wrote Black Hawk Down, but somehow some Somali in this mob realizes that he needs to keep the crowd from beating me to death. So he fires shots in the air and gets control of these people and sort of pushes them away uh, and and stops the beating. They had already broken my nose, my cheekbone, my eye socket. And I mean, they were just, they were just going to beat me to death. And then they, uh, whoever this person was, uh, got things under control. And then they, uh, they, they continued to take the, my gear off got me all the way down to just my my trousers and my t-shirt and then uh, hoisted me up and out of there and you know, off to my first destination somewhere in that sequence my femur goes out the back side of my leg which is oh. another small another small miracle that you know with that kind of manipulation i didn't end up suffering something more serious than i already had i was just going to ask you when you know they, they throw you in the back of a truck you've got a broken leg and, and crushed vertebrae and everything like is the pain from that still lingering or it's just gotten so bad you just don't even notice it anymore the pain was all in my back uh, it, it was uh crushed vertebrae is a is a painful thing it doesn't sound imagine. pleasant no you know you can imagine your bone actually gets smashed and uh, it was completely dominating everything. My back was totally locked up and my leg was just sort of kind of coming along for the ride. And, and I've talked to people with that femur fractures and they were like, you, your femur wasn't really the most painful thing. And I can honestly say, no, it wasn't. But um, no, 
And I don't know if I passed out. I may have briefly, but I do have this distinct memory of looking down from above. And and I've talked to some people who say that's a that's an ability that your brain has when the pain gets to the point where you are about to pass out. It convinces itself that this isn't real, and you're a spectator, and and somehow manages pain that way. You know, most people never use that in their whole life, but I mean, I have a distinct memory of that happening. Didn't, it didn't last very long, but it lasted for a few seconds, and then I'm back in the moment and uh, being carried through the streets like a trophy. So you get put in the back of a truck, and they drive you somewhere. Where do you ultimately, do you know where you ultimately end up, or when you get to your destination, do you meet your captor, and, and how does this all go down? Well, again, credit to Mark Bowden and Blackhawk Down. <laughs> somewhere in this sequence, I get stolen by another clan. Really? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, no no one ever knew this. Uh but the Somalis said that that was the case. So, and that, that explains one of the moves that seemed uh, unnecessary. So the, I'm, I'm assuming at this point then that the first place that we stop, I'm in the hands of this rival clan. And Adid found out that they had me. So he sent negotiators over there. Apparently, I don't know if he paid for me or what, but the, got them to agree to transfer me back to his control. So that's when they throw me on another truck and move me again before, uh, you know, even a couple of hours have gone by. So then I'm in the deeds hands. And uh, uh, the first night was, you know, the battle's raging all around. I can, I can hear the convoy. I can hear projectiles flying through the air. I mean, I was still right in the middle of it. I don't know where I was, but at one point I thought it was a rescue attempt because the convoy is like coming right at us. And the guys in my compound are shooting I can't see it, but I can hear it because I'm in this closed room. And I'm thinking, oh, man, they've already figured out where I am. They're coming for me. And then the convoy just keeps on going. It goes right on by. Did that just break you? It, it didn't break me, but it was certainly a disappointment. I, I was, uh, And you got to be careful. You know, again, I'm hours into captivity. It's not, not a psychological battle per se at this point. But you still have to be careful about how how you view things and how positive or negative you, you allow yourself to get because you can easily get yourself into some kind of emotional trouble if you uh, right. if you allow your emotions to go all over the place. So, but anyway, I made it through the first night and woke up the next day and, and I'm sure I did sleep a little bit because it's just pure exhaustion. But uh, when the light came into the room, I realized just how messed up I really was. My leg was bad. When do you get to that psychological point where you're starting to feel like you don't know how long you're going to be here, you don't know if you're going to live through this and all that? Yeah, I mean, I think at that point, probably that morning, when I'm sorting through things and, you know, trying to figure out what my options are, which are pretty limited, and, you know, it's just, my leg is swelled up like twice its size, and just, you know, I can tell it's broken because of the way it's sitting there and how much it hurts and blood all over the place. It was... Uh, it was it was not looking good at that point. You know, I, I, I vaguely remember this as a kid growing up, but I, I've seen reports on it. They actually put you on TV, the Somalis did. They shot a video of you in captivity where you had to answer questions. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was Monday night. So that was 24 hours into it. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, initially I... I was trying to think of doing you know, doing a couple of things while the camera was rolling, and I, I couldn't really remember some of the stuff I'd been taught to do. And I finally just settled on answering the questions the way they taught me to answer them. And, and you know, I'd been to survival school, so I, I used the techniques that they trained uh, us to use, and they worked really well. And, and so, 
you know, the idea of, of you being there is in those techniques is not to kind of give away anything or, or uh, I, I guess, you know, degrade the American mission there, correct? Like you, you, it had to be all supportive. Yeah, that's the holy grail. I mean, you know, today it's very different than yeah. it was back in World War II. I mean, if you want to find out something, you Google it. You know, maybe not so much in 93, but but information is publicly available on television or, or via the Internet today. So it's really more about the political statements and, you know, undermining the support for U.S. Uh, policy, that, that kind of thing. And then the Somalis are smart enough to know that. they they Those are the kind of questions they ask. And the two questions which are kind of famous in the survival community these days that ended up airing where, where they said, uh, you kill the people innocent. And I said, uh, innocent people being killed is not good. That was my answer. And then they said, how do you think this mission in Somalia? And I said, uh, I'm a soldier. I do what I'm told. And they, they, I don't think they knew what I said. I think they just knew I said something and they thought it was good. And they took that video and, even in 1993, that video, CNN actually got their hands on it first. It was a it was a commercial uh, video guy who was on contract with CNN. He got the video to Atlanta, and within less than an hour, that thing aired in 127 countries. Wow! In, in 93, crazy, That's amazing. I also read through Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down, who also was a guest here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Shameless plug, but. Um, you know, that they were flying choppers through the night and, and on the loudspeaker to let you know that they, they weren't going to leave you, that they were still looking for you. Did you hear that? Do you remember hearing that? Yeah, that went on for days, actually. It was uh, one of my good friends. Uh, his voice was the recording. And uh, it still sends chills up my spine thinking about it because, it, you know, you're in the worst moment of your life and there's a voice calling you from the sky saying, Mike, we won't leave here without you. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Uh, did it bring you to tears? Like, was it really that it, kind of it moving? Didn't, it, it didn't, but I mean, it it it, it got me, uh, you know, sort of reinforced what I already knew, which is, you know, these guys, if, you, if there's a force that can liberate you, this is it. I mean, right. they're, they're right on the other side of the city. And they also have a personal commitment because I'm one of them. So they're going to do everything they can do to get me out of here. They just need to figure out where I am. And then one other thing I read that I found was incredibly interesting, that you actually were able to take notes in a little Bible uh, about what was going on, correct? I mean, can you give me that, that, that whole thing and how it went down? Yeah, I, I got visited by the Red Cross, and they didn't let her bring anything with her in the initial visit because it was there was no notice. They went and grabbed her, and they said, if you want to see the prisoner, come with us. And so she visited with me. And then later I got a box of things that she had collected in case she got a chance to visit with me. And, and there were actually two Bibles in there, and I, I took one, and, and I, I read it, and then I also used it as a journal because I was, you know, trying to make them think that I'm reading the Bible, and if they'd come in and see what I was up to, I'd put the little pen or pencil away, and they couldn't tell what I was doing. They thought I was just reading, and it worked flawlessly. I, I kept the journal, you know, all the major things that happened during captivity, and uh, I still have it today. This is an odd question, but can you describe captivity in a couple of sentences? Like, I mean, when you look back on the experience in its entirety, it's 11 days out of your life. Now, you say 11 days to most people, it's like not really that long a time. But what, is it, what does captivity feel like to you? Uncertainty. I mean, if you ask me for one word, 
And that's the, that's the whole psychological challenge. When you're on day 10, you don't know it's day 10 of 11. It's day 10 of X. So, <laughs> that's a good point. You, know, you, you, you have to, uh, and I, I can't tell you what it would be like to be in captivity for years. I, I mean, those guys, I don't know how they did it, but I do know what it feels like to not know and, and to be injured like that. In fact, the doctors didn't think I would last more than 30 days once they had a chance to actually look at my, my injuries. Um, so it wouldn't have been long-term one way or the other, but uh, fortunately it only was 11 days. Um, but you know, I, of course I grew up in the, in the seventies. So there was a show on back then called Hogan's heroes. And I, mm-hmm. I tell people one thing it isn't is Hogan's heroes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as, as far from reality, you know, in today's world as, as could be, I mean, it's very, it was very hostile. It was, um, you know, terrifying it was uh, although there were moments when i remember laughing i mean there's actually some levity now and then things that happen but uh, uh the the biggest thing i would say is uncertainty what happens on day 11 so you know i mentioned trying not to let yourself get up too high or down too low they got me a radio and, and when they first asked me if i wanted it and i said no but they said they said well here take it so i'm listening to armed forces radio network and and on the radio, there's all sorts of buzz about this guy, Robert Oakley, who's been sent over by the president to uh, to sort things out. And uh, you could tell the whole tone changed as soon as his name was mentioned. They liked Robert Oakley. They trusted him. They called him a straight shooter. And he's a good dude. And uh, reports started coming out in the news that, you know, there was some positive discussions that had occurred and the Somalis then told me that I was going to get released the next day. So, again, I'm trying not to set my sights on, you know, this all could be a big scam. They could be, you know, trying to manipulate me emotionally. You know, this there's no guarantee this is ever going to happen. And um, so I just thought about, you know what, I'm just going to get through today. And if tomorrow something better happens, that's great. But today is today and we'll just get through it. So the next day comes around and same sort of buzz and and I'm thinking again, don't get too set on this. You know, you could be here another month, who knows? And then um, this doctor shows up from the Red Cross and he's got morphine. And uh, that was the first pain relief I'd had since the crash. And oh. uh, when, when I got the morphine, I, I knew, you know, something legit was happening here. And uh, he had uh, some paperwork that, you know, you're supposed to fill out and, and again, I'm cautious. I'm trying not to put things down that I, I don't, you know, disclose in unit specifics and that kind of stuff and playing the game like I'm supposed to play it. And just in case, you know, again, this still could all be a, a manipulation attempt. And then uh, they stick me on this litter and drag me outside and there's media all over the place. And I realize, okay, this is, this is probably real. And then I end up in the, in the UN compound and uh, begin the process of leaving it all behind. When does the totality of everything hit you? I think when I find out that Cliff and Donovan are dead. And when was that? I was in the surgical unit uh, in in Mogadishu. They had to do a couple of emergency surgeries on me. And and, uh, all the guys are there. And uh, the commander was there. And... And I'm looking around, I don't see Cliff and Donovan. And I said, uh, where's Cliff and Donovan? And uh, 
he had a hard time saying it. He's a, he's an emotional guy, a good guy. And, you know, basically said, uh, they were killed. And, you know, I, I, it's just because they were really good friends. Uh, I, you know, that's not to say I didn't care about the other guys that lost their lives. Um, but it, that really, um, brought me to my knees. I had a hard time with that. I'm just, I'm sorry for your loss. And obviously, you know, to this day, it's still not easy for you to deal with. I I can't imagine uh, the feelings that resurface when you, when you tell this story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, You know, when, when you finally get some more distance from what happened and, you know, you realize that, Hey, we picked up and left the city and we kind of left the mission and all that other stuff. We've talked to other people about Black Hawk Down, including Mark Bowden, who told us that, you know, a lot of you guys were ticked off at that. I mean, what were your feelings on that? Oh, for sure. Uh, I think everybody wanted to finish the job. You know, it it was a setback to us. I mean, you know, I, I talk about it with, with some emotion because, you know, when your friends get killed, if you're anything like I am, that bothers you. But it it, it doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, we were there doing our nation's business and uh, we didn't get a chance to finish it. And from a lot of people's perspective, that equals, you know, some of our good friends giving their lives for, for nothing. And uh, there's nothing worse than that. And I think it set a bad message. And in fact, there were reports that Saddam Hussein years later was holding up copies of black and Down and saying, if you guys resist long enough, uh, you know, the Americans will quit. And, and there was too much blood, sweat, and tears been earned by our military in, in many generations to allow anyone to say anyone that wears an American uniform is going to quit because they're not going to quit. Obviously not. It took us 10 years to get bin Laden, and we certainly uh, never quit on that. You know, the uh, Major General Garrison, who was in charge of the operation, took blame for the whole thing after the fact. Do you, when you look back on it, do you feel like that was the right thing for him to do, or was it even his fault? Well, it was the right thing for him to do, but I'm not going to say it was his fault. Right. You know, what I, what I can't, what I can't say is, you know, how hard did he fight for the things that we needed? There were some things we needed. I'm sure he, he fought for them. I don't still know how hard he fought, you know, I, nor do I know, you know, did any of us appreciate how significant not having those things would be. And those things were aircraft carrier to base from uh, tanks to do the recovery counter battery fire uh, for uh, neutralizing some of the mortars that they were using AC 130 for better fire support overhead, you know, pretty, pretty significant resources that were all available, but not provided. And, and that's the real failure is that would we have lost people? Yeah, we would have lost people, but we wouldn't have lost the numbers we lost. And, and it probably would have prevented the mission from getting uh, completely abandoned by our civilian leaders if the losses hadn't been as great as they were. And the reason the losses were as great as they were is because of the decisions made by our civilian leaders. So that's the, that's the real uh, failure in, in that whole story. And if you'd like to have a double failure to add insult to injury, because let's fast forward to December of 2001 when they were chasing bin Laden in the mountains of Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, there are several people who recount the fact that part of the reason he escaped back then was because the resources weren't provided by the civilian leaders to be able to do it, to capture him when they needed him, because, well, for several different reasons, and it's detailed in a book called uh, Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury, who is a Delta Force commander. I'm not sure if you've ever read it or not, but 
that's one of the things he, he, he surmises is that the Department of Defense did not provide them with the adequate resources they needed to capture the guy. Otherwise, they would have had him in December of 2001. And I only bring that up to note, you, you know, just how pointed you made it, that civilian leaders sometimes make decisions for us in uniform, and they're not qualified to make those decisions. Now, that's the way our government is structured. It's the way our military is structured, and we have to live with that. But unfortunately, sometimes the cost of that, Mike, is more than what we want to bear as the people who are in harm's way. Absolutely true. And uh, and seldom, if ever, are they held accountable. Yeah, and, and that's it's, it's very frustrating, to say the least. All right, a couple final thoughts here. I know uh, you've spent a lot of time with us, but as time has passed from this whole thing, did, did, did you ever change your opinion on something that you thought initially or shortly thereafter, and then you got away from it a little more, and you've told the story multiple times, and you realize, hey, that's not really how I feel about it, or is everything still kind of the same as it was 20-some-odd years ago? I think it's still pretty much the same. Um, you know, there may be some subtle differences, um, and I think it's just because, you know, our memories, as time passes, just uh, recall things slightly differently. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, it's all uh, intact. The one mistake I did make, which and it's as innocent as could be, but I actually got Randy and Gary backwards. And, and the reason it happened as I recall, is that Gary was wearing rank on his uniform. And when I saw the um, the write-ups on them for the Medal of Honor citation, he, I think he was promoted posthumously. Mm-hmm. So the rank change screwed me up. And... I finally got it sorted out later after looking at pictures of them, but there was, I, I don't know. I, I think a couple of people got bent out of shape over it and it was, it was just an innocent mistake on my part. There was certainly nothing that I was you know, trying to, uh, to do that wasn't completely above board. I simply made a mistake and, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate because I, I think in some reports, the, the actions of, of one guy or the other is, are backwards because the names are backwards, but it was just a, an innocent mistake. But outside of that, I think everything was pretty consistent. You know, this this wasn't the last flight of your military career. You actually rehabbed and got back to fly again. Was that a good decision or a bad decision for you? It was a great decision. I mean, it was, you know, you got all this awfulness and all this loss and, and you know, in, to add insult to injury, the army tells me I'll never fly again because of my back injury. And I sort of made it my mission to, uh, to prove that number one, I can fly again and I will fly again. And I did. And it feels good to beat the man. You know, it, it just does. Right. And I got back on flight status and flew for five more years. Now I will admit my back was not, uh, in a, in a condition that I probably should have been flying a lot, but I, I was able to make it happen and you know, logged, I don't know, a couple hundred more hours maybe. And then finally, I just want to ask you about Pinnacle Solutions, because that's the company that you've started, and I just want to hear a little bit about it. And is it helping you today kind of deal with all this stuff, or is it all in the rearview mirror? Just tell us about that. It's funny. I, I tell people what, what I, when it's all over, I want people to say, yeah, that's the guy that started Pinnacle, not that's the Black Hawk Down guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting there. Part of the time is helping, because right. we're already to the point where there's a generation of, of young people that – don't really remember Black Hawk Down. I mean, they, they were too young and it, it wasn't part of their generation. Um, now so, it's now it's the you're the lone survivor guy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or I'm related to Kevin Durant. Right. You know, I hear that all the time. Now, yeah. so, Don't you wish? <laughs> yeah, but um, you know that that that's really what I'm what I'm after these days. Is you know I, I talk about it when I'm asked because it's there's there's I think a lot that could have been learned, was learned, should be learned from this mission, and and that we can't you know have a unique perspective and. and I feel like it's my obligation to talk about it when people want to hear about it. But I, for, for the most part, I have completely left it behind. I don't think about it at all unless asked and uh, totally focus on my new mission, which is uh, creating this great company. We're doing well. We're coming up on our 10th anniversary and uh, we've grown significantly. Uh, it's, uh, I'm just proud of it. I got a lot of great people helping me out and uh, we are an absolutely great company. And it's PinnacleSolutionsInc.com is where you can go to get it. Also, you've written a book. It's called In the Company of Heroes. It is a New York Times bestseller. Guys, pick that up if you want to hear about the ins and outs and all the minutiae details of, of Mike's story. But, you know, Mike, I, I don't know what, other, what else to say other than thank you. Um, I mean, on, you know, your graciousness and, and your time are, are certainly appreciated by us here at the Hazard Ground. But your story is one that I hope we continue to tell because I think it's important, as you said, and I think that, you know, your fight for survival is is a hallmark of what we are in the military. It's a hallmark of what we are all about in this country. And, and guys like you are constant reminders of that. And I just thank you so much for everything that you've done for our country. And thank you for being here. Well, I appreciate it. I'm proud of the guys. I'm proud of what we did that day. And, uh, you know, certainly wish the outcome had been quite a bit different. But, uh, you know, no fault at the tactical level from, uh, from what I can tell. Mike Duran, thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.